After a couple of weeks away from our uh, Sermon on the Mount series due to uh, first the weather when we canceled service for I think only the second time, uh, maybe third time, and I think second time in our 13 and a half years uh, as a church, and then last week uh, focusing on Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday, we had a, a couple weeks away from our series there, but we are returning to the series today by looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 30. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, hold your place, we'll look at it here in a couple of minutes. It'll also be on the screen behind me, I believe, when we get there. Uh, three weeks ago, when we uh, last were in the series, we ended at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And today, as we consider verses 21 through 30, what we're going to find is that Jesus does a, a few things in these verses uh, that we're looking at today. First of all, he offers the correct interpretation of Old Testament laws, specifically the Old Testament laws dealing with murder and adultery, the sixth and the seventh commandments. And being the giver of the law, Jesus needed no authority other than himself to explain to us what the law really meant, to provide clarity on how the law is to be understood. And so in these verses that we're going to look at, they're set up this way. Jesus begins them by telling how the law had previously been understood, and then he goes from there and he provides the fuller understanding of it. He provides his interpretation of it, which is the right interpretation of it, because again, Jesus is the giver of the law. And then Jesus uses these sixth and seventh commandments to illustrate what he meant in verse 20 when he said that our righteousness had to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. In using the sixth and seventh commandments as illustrations, what Jesus does is he explains righteousness to us. He explains that it is something more than what the Pharisees understood it to be. You see, the Pharisees understood righteousness to be entirely about the actions that they took. As long as they didn't engage in certain unrighteous actions, they believed that they had attained righteousness, that they had fulfilled righteousness. But Jesus explains that righteousness is something more than what we do or don't do. That righteousness is something more than actions. And so what we'll see throughout the text we consider uh, today and throughout the message that I share is that Jesus explained that righteousness isn't just a matter of actions, but that righteousness is actually a matter of our intentions and our motives. Righteousness goes beyond what we do, and it gets down to what our intentions and our motives are. And so what this means is that righteousness isn't a matter of doing or not doing Righteousness is really a matter of what's happening in our hearts. And that's a, that's a big realization for us to come to. It goes beyond actions. It's what's happening in our hearts. 
Now, I hope you won't mind me admitting to you today that there are a lot of things in life that I have not done, but I really wanted to do. You're, you're appalled. You're shocked. There are lots of things that I didn't do, but I really wanted to do them. And so at the level of my actions, I could say that I lived righteously. But at the level of my heart, where God sees and where God says the real test of righteousness is, I was anything but righteous. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you can relate. So let's look at our text, Matthew 5, 21 through 30. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 20. I don't think that'll be up there because I don't think I told them I was going to start there. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way with him, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, this is one of the funner things Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What a, what a fun little reading that is. Refrigerator material, Christian t-shirt. Something I want to address at the outset is something that I certainly hope no one here has ever thought or will ever think, and so you won't hear me say this very often, but I hope what I say over these next couple of minutes is a total waste of time. But just in case it's not. Someone could be tempted to think to themselves when they read something like this, knowing the, the depths of the human nature uh, as I do, someone could be tempted to think to themselves, well, if by just having the wrong thoughts I'm guilty of murdering someone, or if just by having the wrong thoughts I'm actually guilty of adultery, then perhaps the next time that I'm angry with someone, I might as well just go ahead and I, I don't think we would probably murder them, but I, I just go ahead and punch them in the face. If I don't get any credit for not doing what is in my heart, I'll just go ahead and do it. 
And here's one where I think it's maybe even a greater temptation. If the next time that I'm tempted to lust and I give in to that temptation, if I'm already guilty of adultery just by what I thought, if there's no credit given to me for, for not engaging in the physical act, then why should I restrain myself? So again, I hope this is a total waste of time. I hope no one has ever thought like this or will ever think like this, but I also know human nature. And I think there's a possibility a few folks could think like this. So here's the answer. What Jesus is talking about here is righteousness and right standing before God. He is not here talking about how our sinful intentions, how our sinful heart attitudes impact those around us in comparison to how sinful actions impact those around us. Anger in your heart towards someone reveals you as unrighteous before God, but it will not impact those around you in the same way as if you decided to act on that inward anger and punch someone in the face. Lust in your heart reveals you as being unrighteous before God, but an improper second look at another person in a lustful way will not have the same impact on your spouse as the physical act of adultery. And something else I'll say, and, and I'm going to mention this again a little later, but I would discourage spouses from using this verse to accuse their husband or wife of adultery if the spouse ever admits to having had an inappropriate thought. That is not the intention of Jesus here. And yet on this one, I factually know that spouses do use this verse against each other in this way. Jesus is making a point about righteousness before God. He is not suggesting that sinful desires have the exact same impact on those around us as what sinful actions do. And so with that disclaimer out of the way, let's proceed. Jesus explains righteousness. And he does so by providing us with two case studies. The first case study is the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now the Pharisees of Jesus' day took this commandment very literally, as they should have. You cannot kill another person, but that is the only application of the commandment that they understood. As long as you did not kill another person, the Pharisees considered you to be righteously obedient to the sixth command. You could still harbor anger in your heart toward another person. You could still speak evil of another person. You could question or mock their intelligence. You could question or mock their moral character, even without justification for doing so. You could behave in this way toward other people. And as far as the, the sixth commandment went, you would still be considered to be righteously fulfilling this command of God. And so Jesus uses the sixth commandment to illustrate what he meant 
when he said that your righteousness had to surpass that of the Pharisees if you wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, in verse 21, Jesus said, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. And so Jesus explains the fuller meaning of the sixth commandment. He explains righteousness to us. And his explanation is that the sixth commandment means something more than, than avoiding the physical act of killing someone. The heart matter of the sixth commandment is don't be angry with other people. And then Jesus addresses something that's very common when human beings get angry with each other. Name-calling. Name-calling. He warns that anyone who calls a brother Raka or says to another, you fool, will be in danger of judgment because they have violated the sixth commandment. Do not murder. Raka was a term of contempt that largely had in view someone's intelligence. We go there pretty quickly when we're angry, don't we? Questioning other people's intelligence. It was a term of contempt, similar to calling someone a dimwit, or my personal favorite, moron. <laughs> sort of a sneering contempt regarding someone's intelligence. And the idea behind this prohibition against calling someone a fool had more to do with a person's character. It, it was slandering a person by, by calling into question their character, accusing them of poor moral character. The Pharisees thought they had obeyed the righteousness uh, that was demanded here as long as they didn't kill another person. But Jesus explains the command and he explains righteousness. Do not murder includes don't be angry. So when we understand it this way, and again, Jesus is the giver of the law, so he gets, to, he gets to tell us this. He gets to explain this to us, what it really means. When we understand it this way, how are we doing with obeying the sixth command? So when we just read through the commandments in, in Exodus there, we come to this one, you know, do not murder. And we look around our church family and we say, well, we're pretty certain that nobody here has violated that command. Pretty certain. Some of you are looking uneasy, but... Pretty <laughs> Pretty certain. Pretty certain. But now, we find out that according to Jesus' interpretation of the Sixth Commandment, every single person in here has broken it. Wow. And Jesus considers being angry with each other, and I think this is something we really need to hear. We need to be open to. We need to receive. 
Jesus considers being angry with each other such an important violation of righteousness. Here's what he said in verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, let me interpret that. If you are coming to worship, you're offering your gift at the altar, you are coming to worship. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. First go and be reconciled, then come on in and worship. Jesus considers people being angry with each other such a problem that his advice is that a person should interrupt their worship to resolve their relational problem. Leave worship and go take care of your issue. This tells us that the sixth commandment requires something much more than not doing something, not killing, or even requires something more than just not being angry. The sixth commandment requires actively working toward reconciliation. Actively working toward reconciliation. So case study one from Jesus on how righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Righteousness isn't just refraining from murder, but righteousness is working toward reconciliation. Righteousness is actively combating the circumstances that lead to murder of the heart or even actual murder. So tell me, is this more or less difficult than not killing someone? It's way more difficult. It's way more difficult. Uh, I, I can assure you that I have violated the correct understanding of this commandment. I will admit to you today that I have been in the place of wanting to do physical violence. I was going to say to someone, but the truth is to people. It has happened more than once. It has happened more than once. I've wanted to do that. And like everyone else here, I have wanted credit for not doing it. I've wanted credit for just speaking of the person with contempt. I've wanted credit for only wanting to punch them but not actually punching them. And I have given myself credit for such things. I have patted myself on the back for such things. But Jesus comes to me here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Brian, I am sorry, but you did not understand the commandment. I didn't want you angry in the first place. And if you do find yourself angry, then I want you to go about pursuing reconciliation. And until you do that, don't consider yourself to be in compliance with the sixth commandment, even if you haven't actually physically murdered anyone. So what do we see here? Jesus absolutely does not do away with the law. He, he clarifies the law. He explains the law. 
He shows us that it's not just a matter of the actions you take or don't take. It's a matter of the heart. But it's still in force. It's still applicable. And then we come to the second case study, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that someone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, throw them away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So a couple of quick acknowledgments here, and it's kind of similar to what I shared earlier, but this teaching from Jesus, first of all, needs to be acknowledged as applying to women as well as men. This often is the Jesus is talking to the men verse, is how it's understood. But that's not true. Men are not the only ones who lust. Sometimes men and women lust differently, sometimes in the same ways, but lust is not solely a male issue. Men and women both are in view in Jesus' teaching here. And here's the second quick acknowledgement. This is the one that kind of goes back to what I said earlier. Jesus is not, in this 27th verse, providing every married person with a way out of their marriage. That is not what he's doing here. The Bible acknowledges that a spouse who is the victim of infidelity is permitted to divorce. Now, I don't think Jesus wants it. I don't think he ever wants that. But the Bible does permit divorce in the case of marital infidelity. We're actually going to look at that next week. But Jesus is not here saying that a lustful look is exactly the same as the physical act of adultery as it relates to the impact on our spouse or others around us. Again, he's teaching about righteousness before God. This may seem unnecessary to say, but I have known of situations where the spouse has, a spouse has informed me that they reserve the right to divorce because they knew that their spouse had had a lustful thought about another person. Or perhaps it was because they knew that their spouse had viewed a sinful image and they used this verse to claim that they had the right to divorce. And what they said is, Brian, according to the Sermon on the Mount, they are guilty of adultery. Not exactly. Aren't we having fun today? <laughs> Before God, yes, a lustful look is a violation of the seventh commandment. We've not fulfilled the righteousness of the seventh commandment if we've lusted, even if we've not committed the physical act of adultery. But in terms of our marriage partner, while a lustful look is hurtful, it is not the same as physical adultery. Let us be clear, when Jesus allowed for divorce in the case of adultery, it was for physically acting on the temptation. It was for physically engaging in the act of adultery. 
But of course, the point of Jesus' teaching again is to explain righteousness. You can't refrain from physical adultery and pat yourself on the back for fulfilling the seventh commandment while lusting after anyone and everyone who catches your attention. You cannot pat yourself on the back for fulfilling the seventh commandment while looking at pornography. You cannot pat yourself on the back for fulfilling the seventh commandment while daydreaming about how much more dreamy the new guy at work is compared to your husband. You just can't do it. The Pharisees would have said you, you could because it was all about the letter of the law. But to truly fulfill the righteousness of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It includes and it requires this, don't look lustfully at another person. The Pharisees were satisfied that they had fulfilled righteousness as long as they kept their tunics on. But Jesus wants us to know that keeping our tunics on is not enough to fulfill the seventh commandment. He wants us to know that our righteousness needs to go beyond that of the Pharisees. He wants us to know that righteousness isn't just about actions. It is about our hearts. And so Jesus' explanation of the seventh commandment amounts to this. Righteousness isn't just refraining from physical adultery, but disciplining every thought and action to be singly focused on your spouse. That is how you fulfill the righteousness demanded by the seventh commandment. Not just a matter of action, intent, motive, it's a matter of the heart. And so again here we see that Jesus does not do away with the law, he explains the law, and he properly applies the law. And now we get to verses 29 through 30 where Jesus said some pretty wild things. He says that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He says it's much better to go to heaven maimed than to be thrown into hell with your body whole. Does Jesus really want us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if they cause us to sin? Well, surveying the congregation this morning, <laughs> completely confident that with Jesus' understanding of the seventh commandment, everybody in here has violated it. And since I see that everybody has two eyes and two hands, I am confident that you have answered this question correctly. Of course, Jesus is not speaking literally here. Doesn't want us cutting off our hands. Does not want us gouging out our eyes. He uses this kind of language, shocking as it is, to get our attention and to make this point. He wants us to take heart-level sins seriously, so seriously that we take decisive action to avoid it. He doesn't want us to physically maim ourselves, 
but he does want us to take radical action to leave no room in our minds for sin. He wants us to commit to rigorous self-discipline and self-denial in order to mortify the desires of the flesh. Here's how John Stott says it. He says that while Jesus doesn't want us cutting off our, our hands and gouging out our eyes, he does want us to live as though you had gouged out your eye and to live as though you had cut off your hand. In other words, leave no room for the flesh. Do whatever is necessary to shut down the internal lust that violates the righteousness of the seventh commandment and often sets us up for physically violating the seventh commandment. Usually you can only have it in here so long until you start to take action on it. So we've got, we've got, to, we've got to stop this at this point right here. So ask yourself, what do I need to do? What radical action do I need to take? What allowance do I have in my life right now that is setting me up to continue to entertain uh, lust in my mind and is setting me up for eventually acting on it? What decisive action do I need to take? We learned early in this series that no matter how many people think Jesus did away with the Old Testament law, Jesus does not see it that way. And in these two case studies of how our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees, we've discovered that nothing has gotten easier for us. Everybody thinks the New Testament is easy compared to the Old Testament. I cannot read the words of Jesus and figure out how that is true. How is it true? Nothing has gotten easier. Don't kill. God explained to be, don't be angry. Nothing easier. Don't commit adultery. Got clarified to mean, don't even look at another person inappropriately. Am I missing something? What, what got easier? Nothing got easier. It seems to me like this New Testament teaching, more than uh, instead of making things easier, it actually just made things way more demanding. It did. And this more demanding understanding of the commandments is purposeful. It's for a reason. It is meant to accomplish something in us. If all God requires is that we don't kill people, most of us can check that box. We can present ourselves to God. We can say, God, I fulfilled your righteousness. Never killed anyone. If all God requires is that we don't commit the physical act of adultery, Fewer of us than with murder, but still a pretty good percentage of us could stand before God and point to the command and put a check mark next to it. So say, God, once again, I have fulfilled your righteousness. What's so hard about this? 
I'm just fulfilling righteousness left and right. I'm keeping all these commands. Look at me. Pretty good guy. But once Jesus has explained to us, fully explained righteousness to us, once Jesus has fully explained the righteousness that God requires, that it's not just a matter of white-knuckling it and not killing anybody. I want to, but I won't. That it's not just a matter of avoiding physical adultery. I'll think about it whenever I want, I just won't actually do it. But instead, it's a matter of the heart. You have to be righteous not just in your conduct, but in your intentions and in your motives. This is meant to bring us to the realization that the Bible is absolutely right when it says there is none that is righteous, no, not one. What it is meant to do is to bring a bunch of people who don't think they need Jesus to the realization that they desperately need Jesus. You realize that most of the people in the United States of America, and sad to say, probably way too many of us in here right now, basically believe that they get to heaven by being a pretty good person. I don't kill anybody. I've never stolen anything, except from Uncle Sam. I mean, everybody does that, so that's not really... Counting as stealing. I helped a little old lady across the street just yesterday. All those other heathens were just watching her struggle to get across. I, I helped her. Do good works. Go to heaven. That's, that's what our culture believes. That's what a lot of Christians believe. <laughs> they they sit and hear the gospel preached over and over and over again and functionally live as though, well, as long as I'm a pretty good person, I'm going to go to heaven. But when the truth of the righteousness that God requires in order to enter the kingdom of heaven hits us, that, that it's a matter of our heart, not just our actions, it is meant to lead us to the realization that we absolutely cannot earn our way with God. We absolutely cannot merit anything with God. And this realization is meant to lead us to Jesus, the only one who has ever fully satisfied the righteousness that God requires. Here's how Romans 3, 20 through 24 explains it, and it explains it quite well. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law, for the law merely brings awareness of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed as attested by the law and the prophets. And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so we learn a number of things here. I'm just going to scratch the surface, but we learn that the law silences our boasting. There's no more, hey God, I checked him off, didn't kill anybody, didn't commit adultery, look at me. There's none of that. The law, properly understood, as Jesus the lawgiver explains it, it silences our boasting. And it makes us accountable to God for everything it says, rightly understood. Romans 3, 20 through 24. So it tells us this. It goes on and tells us that we can't be justified by the law because none of us can satisfy its righteous demands. And so what we come to understand, the point of it is, is that it brings an awareness of our sin. And then we go on and find here in Romans that now there's a righteousness that is available to us that doesn't come from fulfilling the law, which we just found out none of us seem to be capable of. It's a righteousness that comes that is received through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We find that it's true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Understanding righteousness as Jesus explains it is meant to clue us into the reality that we are unable to satisfy the righteousness that God requires, and it's meant to cause us to turn to Jesus in faith and believe in Him. And when we do, Paul tells us that we're justified freely by His grace. So Jesus explains righteousness in order to help us recognize we need Him so that we'll turn to Him and receive the righteousness that comes by faith. Knowing this congregation the way that I do, I know that most of you here today have already done that. But if you have not done that, my hope is that hearing today about the high bar of righteousness that Jesus presents to us in the Sermon on the Mount, that that will convince you to give up this self-justification game and turn to Jesus in faith. That's what I hope some of you will do today. Let's stand. 